this time in the word right now, I pray for just a fresh anointing on this word. Lord, this is your word. This is your rhema word tonight. Let your Holy Spirit be released. I pray that there would be such a tangible anointing and a glory and atmosphere here so strong. Lord, that everybody will just be locked in and focused to give you their best ear, their full attention. That our minds will be so focused. The enemy won't be able to distract or steal anything. It will be totally captivated by the word of God and our eyes anointed to see, ears anointed to hear, and that you give us eyes and ears of the spirit. And Lord, as I speak, I pray the awesome Holy Spirit is, is, is captivating people. Let the word of God go in to people's hearts and minds and their lives as living seeds of truth that are sown into good fertile soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, and will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest that remains until Jesus comes. And we thank you, Lord, for that. We believe tonight. We thank you for moving in every life, every life being transformed in Jesus' name. So I'm going to be speaking this word. This is probably the most significant word I believe I preached in 2012. And what I want to say up front is this. You don't have to go back and hear all of the sermon series to get something out of this. This this can be listened to independently, but I will say this. This is kind of a capstone to the series that I've done over the last couple of years dealing with faith, which can be on our website. You can listen to it or watch it. A series on faith, a series on the protocol of heaven, a series on the end times, and a series called Seductions of Satan, which have to do with spiritual warfare. This is kind of a capstone to those series, okay? And we're going to sum it up. And how many knows that we can recover all? Let me tell you up front that, you know, just remember to not get offended with God. Because the Bible says that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And so many times when the enemy starts attacking people, one of the main things he wants to do is get us offended with God. Because blaming God for what's going on, getting upset with God, frustrated with Him. Why would you let this happen? Why is this going on? And that's one of the enemy's tactics is to get us offended with God. But if you understand that it is the devil that has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come to give life, you'll understand that it's not God behind all of this stuff. When the enemy's trying to steal from you, he's trying to destroy your life, don't blame God because it's not God. God is on your side and he's wanting to help you through it and give you the victory and teach you how to fight and how to be victorious. And I remember in Psalms, David said this. He said, the Lord teaches my hands to war. That's what God is wanting us to learn as Christians is how to overcome. Another principle I want to tell you is this. There's a scripture, Proverbs 23, 23, which says to buy the truth and sell it not. Now listen, you're probably going to want to jot a few things down as I go tonight. I, I want you to be able to take these notes and put them in your Bible and keep it. Because you're, at some point in your life, you're going to need to go back to this. Okay? But buy the truth and sell it not. I know that Jesus paid for our healing, our deliverance, and all of that at the cross. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where you have a calling on your life and a destiny. And God begins to put you through training. He's equipping you and He's training you. And whenever you go through trials and you get on the other side of it and you've persevered, there are certain things that you go through persecution and trials and you're, 
once you endure that, you're basically paying a price for that truth. And God, let me let me try to bring this a certain way that makes sense. There are certain people that have been through something, like maybe they went through a major betrayal. Like let's say that there was there was a guy that was a Christian and maybe his wife betrayed him and left him for another man. It was very traumatic. He had to get healed. He had to get over that. And then it seems like that he has some kind of an authority and an anointing on his life that when he ministers to people that have gone through something like that, that there's really something powerful there. Do you see what I'm saying? And let me bring it another way. It's just like, you know, Brother Anthony has a healing ministry, but not everybody likes the healing ministry. You know, not everybody likes revival. Some people hate revival. And whenever God starts moving in your life, there's certain things that God will deposit in your life that you're going to have to pay a price about. And I'm going to tell you that if you're not willing to pay the price, that things get tough, you're going through persecution, and you begin to back off, God's going to have to use somebody else that can endure that persecution to be able to handle what He's called you to do. But God wants us to learn how to endure and be able to rise up. But see, here's the thing. Whenever we're going through that stuff, God is trying to help us learn how to buy the truth and not sell it. Because I'm going to tell you this. Whenever God has put something into your life like revival, and you go through persecution, you're misunderstood, you're lied about, you're betrayed, you go through all this stuff, you get through the other side of that, you're not going to be quick to sell out. You're going to be willing to stay the course for that truth that God has given you. You see what I'm saying? That's what I'm talking about when I'm saying buy the truth and sell it not. It's that you, God allow, God deposits some kind of revelation in your life and you know that it's the truth. You know it's God's word. And people attack you. People are trying to tell you it's not of God. They're attacking you. They're persecuting you. And it causes you to dive deeper into the Word of God and deeper into His presence, but you get more established in that truth. And then, later on down the road, the Lord says, I can trust that person because I know that when persecution comes, they're not going to get flung off and they're not going to deny this truth that I've given them. They're going to fight for it. They're going to endure. So some of you are going through things, but it's actually preparing you. Are you hearing me? It's actually preparing you for what God's called you to do. And I'm going to tell you something else before I get in this. God is developing our faith. Jesus said about the persistent widow, He said that she was she kept going and, and that unrighteous judge gave her justice. And He said, how much more will your Father do it for you? But this is what He said, when the Son of Man comes, He will find faith on the earth. God's trying to strengthen and develop our faith. You know what I'm saying? And so when you're going through a spiritual attack and you're suffering some kind of loss. Don't get offended with God. It's an attack of the devil. Understand that God may be allowing you to go through a time of testing because He wants you to buy the truth and sell it not. He's wanting you to endure, but also He's trying to develop your faith and strengthen your faith. Let me read you a story about David at Ziklag. 1 Samuel 30. It says, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. 
and they had attacked Ziklag and burned it. And it had taken captive women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed no one, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. How many knows when everything's going wrong, you know, each one of them was bitter in spirit because his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord. Sometimes you've got to find strength in the Lord, but just you and the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord. He said, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? The Lord answered David and said, pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So David and 600 men with him came to Besor Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him some water and drink and food to eat, and part of a cake pressed with figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate it and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. And David asked him, Who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I'm an, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. And I'm going to talk about the Amalekites throughout this service. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites and some territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. So in other words, he was there. And David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? And he said, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I'll take you down to him. And so he led David down, and there they were, scattered along the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until evening the next day, and none of them got away, except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Everybody say everything. everything. David recovered all. Okay? Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds. His men, his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at, at the Besor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out to battle with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man take his own wife and children and go. But David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that. With what the Lord has given us, he has protected us and delivered us, delivered, I'm sorry, delivered into our hands the raiding party that had come against us. Who will listen to what I say? The share of the men who stay with the supplies is the same as him who went down to battle. All will share alike. And David made this statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were his friends, saying, Here is a gift from you, the plunder of the Lord's enemies. Now listen, when you get spoils from war, you know, just like David, David, David didn't just recover for himself, he recovered for everybody else, and there was enough plunder. Because he not only got back everything that they took from Judah, but he got everything that they took from the Philistines. He had so much plunder, he was able to bless many other people with it. Are you hearing me? 
See, the Bible says when a thief is caught, he must restore back sevenfold. So I believe you're going to come through this recovering a lot more than what you lost. Amen? All right. So I'm going to give you eight explosive, powerful points. But let me tell you this. Sometimes when I preach and others preach, you've got certain points, but the preacher will say, look, I'm, going to, I'm getting to this. I'm going for this. But I'm telling you tonight that each and every one of these points are powerful. And each one of them could be a sermon by themselves. But I'm going to just touch on them because I've already touched on these points in other series. But I'm going to share some things that you, don't, you probably have never heard before. But we've got to learn... The Bible says that God teaches my hands to war. We've got to learn to deal with the fact that the enemy is going to try to come in and steal. He is. And when I'm talking about recovering all, I'm talking about lost loved ones. I'm talking about people's children that have strayed. I'm talking about uh, finances that have been lost. I'm talking about jobs that have been lost. That shouldn't have been. It was a weird circumstance. I'm talking about things in life where it seems like the devil came in, he wreaked havoc, there was chaos and there was loss, and now you're going after a full recovery, getting everything back. And I'm going to tell you right now, God is in the recovery business, but you'll come out more blessed than what you lost, I promise you. The first thing I'm going to talk about is the awesome power of the blood of Jesus. Some people are trying to take the blood out of the gospel. But I'm going to tell you the blood is all through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The blood in the Old Testament of bulls and goats and the blood in the New Testament, Christ's blood. But His blood has awesome power. Are you hearing me? And to understand that it is the blood that gives us authority over the devil and defeats the enemy. The blood of Jesus is applied by faith. The children of Israel, I'm just going to paint a picture. Whenever they, God told them to take the Passover lamb, they were to kill the lamb, they would shed its blood. The blood was caught in a bowl. And the head of the house would take hyssop, which was like grass. He reached down and grabbed a hand of hyssop and rip it up. And he used it like a paintbrush, okay? And he would dip that paintbrush of grass, that hyssop, in the blood. And he would paint on the doorpost over his home the blood of the Lamb. And whenever the death angel came through Egypt, he passed over and was unable to affect the homes that had the blood covering. The blood protected them. But the blood, hyssop, represents faith. The blood is applied by faith. The blood of Jesus is not something you're physically going to see anymore. Are you hearing me? But it is still there. It is just as real today as it's ever been. You apply the blood by faith. And I'm going to tell you right now, where the blood of Jesus is applied, the enemy's power becomes broken. Let me show you some things. In the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 9, Satan and some of his fallen angels appeared to God, and God said, have you considered Job? And they said, well, you have put a hedge of protection around Job and his family and all that he has. And they recognized that hedge. They couldn't get to him. They said there's a hedge around him. We can't get through to him. Now you've got to understand that every day Job was a righteous man. And every day he would get up and he would shed blood. He would take an animal. He would shed its blood for the sin of his family. That blood, even the blood of bulls and goats, that blood had the power to put a hedge around him and his family where the devil couldn't get to him. Are you hearing me? 
Every day we need the blood of Jesus over our lives fresh. Every day when I pray, I'm like, Lord, right now the blood of Jesus is over me and my family and everything I own. It's over our finances, over our health. It's over every area of our lives. It's over our travels. It's over what we own. The blood is over our lives right now. And I know by faith that the blood is there. And because the blood is there, there's a hedge around where the enemy cannot penetrate. Are you hearing me? The blood also takes us right into the glory of God and allows the glory of God to come dwell among us. You cannot have the glory, God's manifest presence without the blood. It's impossible. You cannot do it. In the Old Testament, when the priest went into the Holy of Holies, there was nothing in there to light it up. It was dark. But he went in there and he had a bowl of the blood of the Lamb. And he would take his finger and he would sprinkle that on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle that blood on the top of that mercy seat. And when he did, the glory of God would rest on that blood and it would light up that Holy of Holies. And he would stand there, right there, in the glory of God, in God's manifest presence, because of the blood. You can go into, that's why do you think that we take communion at the beginning? Because I want the blood applied. We can go right into the glory because of the blood, but if you try to go without the blood, you're going to be frustrated. As the Bible says, our righteousness is as filthy rags. So as good as you've done today, it's not going to matter tomorrow without the blood. Are you hearing me? You may go in tomorrow and say, well, I'm just going to go into God's presence and not worry about the blood. You're going to be frustrated. You have to go through the blood. And where the blood of God is, the blood of Jesus is applied, the glory of God will begin to descend and rest in that place. But it's the blood that brings the glory. And where the glory of God is, His manifest presence. The glory in the Old Testament was two Hebrew words, the kabod which is the weighty presence of God and the Shekinah, which is His shining. The glory of God forms over us a protection. But we're going to need the blood in these last days like never before. I've heard several preachers that I really love and respect that are putting more and more of an emphasis on taking the Lord's Supper with their church on a more frequent basis because they feel the Holy Spirit prompting them that we're going to need that in these last days. We need the covering of the blood. And where the glory of God is, there's protection. Amen? The glory is a protection. Also, there's a principle that I I just heard a preacher talking about. I love this. I've got to share it. There was one lamb per household. So, in the Old Testament times, when they had the Passover, there was one lamb for the whole family. And let me tell you this story. This preacher was sharing that this woman in his church, she, she was praying for her son who was lost. He was in the occult. He was really away from God and they, had, they were estranged and they had a very bad relationship. Every time she tried to talk to him, they were fighting. It was a bad relationship. He didn't want anything to do with her God. And she was really earnestly seeking the Lord about this and the Lord gave her that revelation. He showed her, he said, there was one lamb per household. And when you take communion, take it by faith for you and your family. That you're taking it for you and your family. One lamb per household. And it reminds you of the scripture where Paul talked about. He said that a believing spouse will sanctify the unbelieving spouse and the children. And so she got alone with God and took this communion by faith for her and her family. 
And this is a true story. I heard this preacher sharing it. He said that something happened, and within a day, I believe it was the same day, but within a day or two, that child had called the mother apologizing about things and gave his life to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? It broke something. It broke something off that child. See, under the Old Testament law, if somebody was like a leper, was to touch another person, it made the other person unclean, even if they didn't catch leprosy, just the fact they came in contact. Or a dead person. If a dead person was to touch somebody, they became ceremonially unclean for seven days. They couldn't go into God's presence. But see, under the New Testament, whenever those unclean things came in contact with Jesus, instead of those unclean things making Jesus dirty, Jesus made them clean. You see what I'm saying? So when a dead person came in contact with Jesus, instead of him being defiled, the dead person raised from the dead. There's awesome power in communion. I think a lot of times Pentecostal churches have gotten away from the power of communion. Some of the real staunch denominational churches, they they have a lot of an emphasis on communion, but they may neglect the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think sometimes churches that, that are embracing the power of the Holy Spirit are neglecting communion. I can't get too much into communion, but in the book of Revelation, you can study this for yourself, it talked about to one of the churches that said, I have this problem with you that you've forsaken your first love. And if you look that up in the, in the Greek, it says this. It says your supreme love feast. I thought for a long time that that just meant that initial zeal when you get saved that you're on fire for God and maybe they had gotten a little dry in their life. But that isn't what it was talking about. In the Greek, it says that they neglected the Lord's Supper. They neglected their, their supreme love feast, which was communion. And it endangered them. The Lord said, if you don't return back to that first love, He said, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And what the lampstand is, it's a fresh anointing. And I believe some people are are living on yesterday's anointing and they can move into a fresh anointing if they would embrace the Lord's Supper again. Because when you take communion, it gives everybody a chance to examine themselves corporately. We're making sure there's not unforgiveness. We're making sure that sin is dealt with. You hear, hear what I'm saying? And we're checking ourselves and we're getting covered and washed in the blood. And we're all going together through the blood into the glory. And there's a fresh anointing in that. I believe with all my heart that the, the communion table was the table in the presence of our enemies that David saw. He said, God will prepare a table in the presence of our enemies where our heads will be anointed with oil and our cups will overflow. Here's some things that, symbolically speaking, are released through the power of communion. In Leviticus 6.18, it says that the priest of the Old Testament would eat of the sacrifice. They, they would take the animal, cut it into five pieces, they sprinkled the blood, they put the animal there, burned it. It was for the sin of that family, but they would eat of that sacrifice. The priesthood, that was their portion. And it's a, it's a type and shadow of us taking communion. But it says in Leviticus 6.18 that when the priest ate of that sacrifice, they became so holy that even what they touched became holy. I believe that there's a deep consecration in taking the Lord's Supper. I do. Think about what represents Jesus' body and blood. It represents it that it is getting into you and in your bloodstream. You hear what I'm saying? It's getting in you. Secondly, in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul said, he was talking about 
taken the Lord's Supper and he said, the yeast is being purged out. Yeast represents sin. Now I've seen as people take the Lord's Supper individually, God is purging the yeast out of them as an individual as He's sanctifying them. But also I've seen it in the church. I've seen God purge the church. Are you hearing me? Do you remember when Jesus was taking the Passover and He said the person that dips His hand with me will be the one that betrays me? And as soon as He dipped and He ate it, Judas was purged out from the discipleship. There's something about unrepentant people that as we're taking communion as a church that it seems to purge out those that refuse to get things right in their life. That they're either going to let it purge them on the inside or God will purge them out. This is good preaching. Also, healing and deliverance is released through communion. I don't even know how many times I've heard stories of people healed when they take communion. I've heard so many stories because people are remembering the stripes Jesus took on His back. And that by His stripes, I'm healed. And then they take that and they chew that up and swallow that. And they're doing it with faith and it releases healing. Also, deliverance. I've heard many, many stories about people taking the Lord's Supper and being delivered of demonic bondage and junk. Also, 1 Samuel 21, it talks about David and his mighty men had grown weary in battle. And whenever they came, I believe it was Nob, they came there, the priest allowed them to eat the consecrated bread, but it gave them strength for the battle. And let me just tell you, the Lord's Supper brings strength for the battle. And as I mentioned earlier, the glory rests on the blood. If you want the glory in your life, Fill your life with communion and get your life under the blood of Jesus. Of course, communion is a powerful way to apply the blood, but you don't have to use communion. It's by faith. It's by faith that you apply the blood. This place is a holy place under the blood of the Lamb. Because before you ever got here, I put the blood here by faith. And declare this to be holy ground. Alright, the second point I want to make is about the awesome power of the Holy Spirit. People underestimate the Holy Spirit for some reason, but the Holy Spirit, is His power is amazing. Are you hearing me? His power is amazing. And for, in Genesis 1-2, it talked about right at creation, right before God was going to start speaking, let there be light. Right as God was about to speak, it says the Holy Spirit was, it says fluttering really, but brooding over the earth. He was brooding over it. And that's like a hen would sit on the eggs. He was, the Holy Spirit was resting over the earth and he was brooding over it. And in the Hebrew, it it implies like a fluttering. And while the Holy Spirit's presence was there brooding, God spoke, let there, let there be light. And the power of the Holy Spirit just exploded. See, when the Holy Spirit is brooding and His presence is there, whenever you speak the Word of God, it explodes. And the Word of God is explosive because the Holy Spirit causes healing. He causes freedom and breakthroughs. See, as I pray, 
daily. I pray for me and my family and, and everyone. And I pray that the blood of Jesus be over our lives. But I also ask that the Father would allow the Holy Spirit to fill and brood over our lives and move everything into alignment with the will of God. Because where the Spirit of God is brooding, we need to ask Him. I'm going to talk about this later, but you know why we don't have a lot of things? Because we don't ask. It's James 4, 6, I believe. It says, you have not because you ask not. We've got to start asking and believing. So we need to ask the Lord to let His Spirit brood over people. I've prayed for people that were away from God, and I pray, Lord, let Your blood be over them. And I pray that Your Spirit just be brooding over their life. And moving in their life and drawing them unto you. And I keep hearing testimonies as God's just moving in people's lives. Because the Holy Spirit's power and His presence is so awesome. And when He begins to brood over someone's life, they'll never be the same. He's drawing them. The Spirit of God, He is the one that draws in the harvest. And so when we pray, pray that the Holy Spirit brood over, but pray that He will fill, that He'll bring change, that He will sanctify, He'll bring healing and freedom into people's lives. Dutch Sheets wrote a book on intercessory prayer, and he said that he began to pray that the Spirit of God would brood over people and draw them, and testimony after testimony of people that, that the Holy Spirit began to move in their life, and all of a sudden they just wanted to come to church on their own. All of a sudden they were making phone calls, and all of a sudden they wanted to get right with God. Why? Because the Spirit of God was brooding over their life. See, the Holy Spirit is brooding over this place. He's in this place. And that's why things will happen. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So here's what the Holy Spirit will do as you pray. If all of us will learn to pray that the blood of Jesus be over our lives and our loved ones. And that the Holy Spirit will brood over our lives and our loved ones and move everything into alignment with the will of God. If we'll learn to pray that way, we're going to start seeing results. But the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Peter 1, 2, will sanctify us. We need the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, things you used to watch, now you don't feel like you can watch them anymore because the Holy Spirit says, no, it's time to get that out. All of a sudden, things you used to listen to, you can't listen to anymore. The Holy Spirit convicts you. He's sanctifying you. He's purifying your life. The Holy Spirit also changes us and gives us Christ's desires in our heart. King Saul, whenever it was time for him to become king, Samuel anointed him and he said, you're going to go out and you're going to run into these prophets and they're going to be dancing and all this and you're going to be with them. And he said, the Spirit of God is going to come on you. And the story was that Saul went out there and he got among those prophets. He got in the presence of God and the Bible says he became a new man and had a new heart. The Holy Spirit will give us new hearts and change our hearts to where we love the things of God and begin to hate what's evil. He'll give us new desires. And I just speak that as I pray over people within the sound of my voice, those that are hearing that God give us new hearts and begin to give us a hatred for what's evil. And evil desires that we used to have be burned out. Y'all just agree with me. It'll be burned out and cleansed out of people's lives in Jesus' name. And even as I'm speaking, that there'll be an imparting of a hunger in people for the things of God, for His Word and His presence. Another thing to, that in prayer, in dealing with the Holy Spirit, is releasing God's kingdom. Remember, Jesus said, Your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
But see, as you study that out in the Greek, it is not just an asking, Lord, let this be so. It's not just that, but it's also speaking with authority, Lord, we release the kingdom of God in the earth now. We release your kingdom to come and your will be done and speaking it with faith and authority and things will begin to move in alignment with his will. Do you you see that? That's an important point I hope you don't miss. We have the authority to command and speak that the kingdom of God be released in the earth. See, what's in heaven, there's not poverty in heaven. There's not sickness. And whenever we are taking our rightful place of authority and releasing the kingdom of God in the earth, things begin to move. Poverty is broken and provision comes. Sickness is broken and healing comes. Demons flee. The third thing, and this is each one of these is just explosively powerful. But the third point I want to make is God's grace to the humble. We've got to be dependent on the Lord. Let me tell you, self-reliant people that have an attitude, well, I don't need God's help, I can do this. Those type of people right there, they're going to have a lot of problems. We need God's help in everything. And people that are humble and dependent on God, God will give them grace. And here's what I want to show you. There's things in your life that God knows You know and the devil knows that you cannot change it even if you want to. But I'll give you good news. The Spirit of God can change it in you. So we've got to learn to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I cannot do this. I I want to break this habit, but I can't. But I know that your Holy Spirit can do it through me. So I'm asking you, Father, let your Spirit do it through me. This is an important point. I hope that this one really gets, gets down into people's spirit because the Bible says God gives His grace to the humble. In James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. There's things that we cannot do in and of ourselves in the flesh. And God knows that. But He, he wants to do it through us so He'll get the glory. See, you don't see a tree that's an apple tree that's out there striving trying to produce an apple with all of its might. It's just squeezing so hard to hopefully an apple just pop out, you know. You don't see that. What you see is they're just resting and it just happens. God wants us to learn to be so humble that we're not striving to do it in our own strength, but we're yielding to the Holy Spirit in humility. We're yielding to the Spirit of God who does it through us. What we could not do. See, salvation in the Greek is the word sozo. And that word implies saved, healed, delivered, made whole, set free, and to prosper. All of that is wrapped up in that one Greek word sozo that we use for salvation. That's everything that Jesus paid for you to have on the cross is all wrapped up in that one word right there. Protection, provision, prosperity. Health, deliverance. But God knows that it's going to be by His grace that it comes. For Ephesians 2.8 says, It is by grace that you have been saved. Sozo. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. And so you've got to learn to be humble because that releases God's grace 
for you to start seeing that sozoed life begin to come into your life. It's not something you strive for. It's something that you humble yourself down and receive by faith. The Holy Spirit will give us the grace. You know, 1 Peter 2.24 says that Jesus born His body our sin that we can die to sin and live unto righteousness. A lot of people look at that and say, well, how can I die to sin? Well, the truth of the matter is, you can't. But the Spirit of God can in you and through you. So what you got to do is say, Lord, this thing's been in my life. I've been trying to overcome it, but I cannot do it on my own. So I humble myself and ask you for the grace that you would do this through me. Give me the victory. Change me. One of my favorite stories in the Bible about Abraham defeating four kings and their armies. Now let me tell you, when I read, there's a couple of my favorite stories I'm reading you tonight. This is one of them. I want you to think about for a minute. Here's an older man. And he's got his family. He gathers them up because some people just messed with Lot and it made him mad. So he gathers up his family and they go whip four kings and their armies. Alright. Let me read this story because I like this story. At that time when Amraphrel, however you say it, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Eleazar, Kedliomer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goim, these kings went to war against Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shimabar, however you say it, the king of... I give up. Anyway, verse 3. Yeah, I'm not too... All right, anyway, these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley, for 12 years they had been subject to Kedliomar, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedliomar and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtoreth, the Zuzites in Ham, and others, skipping down, and verse 8, Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, they all marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedliomar. Verse 11, The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their food, and then went their way. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot in his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Now, if they had done everything else but left Lot alone, their lives would have been okay. But they made the mistake of touching Lot, and it made Abraham mad. And whenever a man of God under the anointing starts moving that direction against the devil, see, the devil always overplays his hands. You see what I'm saying? So a man of God who has escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abraham. And Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, and he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, North of Damascus, he recovered all the goods. Everybody say, recovered all. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and other people. After Abram had returned from defeating Kedliomar, the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. 
Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God the Most High. He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave a tenth of everything. That's where tithing comes from. That's where it began. All right. So Abram went in there and defeated four kings and their armies with his family. Now, granted, his family was 318 trained men, okay? When you're blessed of the Lord. <laughs> yeah. But here's my point about that. They recovered all. But let me tell you something. You cannot be passive. You cannot be passive. You have got to rise up and begin to bind and rebuke the enemy and use your authority. Please hear me because I'm telling you that the body of Christ has not been taught about this. Too many people are just sitting back passively going, God, what do I do? God, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And the Lord is saying, man, bind them and drive them out. And use your authority. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. John 10.10, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give life and that you may have it in full. But the Bible says in James 4, 6-7 that we must submit to God but resist the devil. That's an active thing. We resist. We resist. We take authority. I remember trying to tell this to one guy, bless his heart. And I mean, for whatever reason, he was just, I guess, afraid of the devil. I'm not sure. But he was just always like, well, I'll just press into the Lord and get close to Him. And that sounds good, doesn't it? But the problem is that that's not going to work. That's the big problem. We have got to rise up and use our authority. Jesus said, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. But we have to use that authority. What happened whenever Jesus, who's our example, was in the wilderness and was tempted by the devil? Did he sit back and just twiddle his thumbs and, oh God, deliver me and help me? No. He, he rebuked the devil and says, it is written... Amen? And David ran at Goliath. You know, David wasn't running from Goliath in mid-stride, throwing his sling back over his shoulder, you know, running like this. No, he ran at Goliath and cut his head off. Whenever Joshua was going to go into Canaan, the Lord said, Be strong and courageous, I'm with you. But Joshua had to draw his sword... And he had to go in and take it by force. It wasn't just handed to him. Joshua and his, little, his men didn't sit around and make a fire and join hands swaying, singing Kumbaya. <laughs> and the cities of Canaan just fell. And everybody just died. And they just it wasn't like that. They had to draw their sword and they had to go in. First Chronicles 14, 15 says, I'm going to get to that in a moment, getting ahead of myself. But we have to use our authority. A lot of times the reason why the devil is getting away with things and we're not recovering all is because we're not using our authority. You have the authority as a Christian to bind the enemy. If there's some kind of a spirit that's attacking your kids, then in Jesus' name, I bind you. You get out of here. You're going to get off my kids. I break your power. They belong to the Lord. I'm praying. You see what I'm saying? You're taking your authority and you're driving them back so the Lord can move in their life. 
But if you sit back passively, then they're going to keep doing what they're doing. The enemy's kingdom many times are squatters that are sitting there because nobody's challenging them. There's demonic spirits that are sitting in people's lives and even sitting in some churches. And sitting in neighborhoods, in areas that are just sitting there, unchallenged. But if somebody will rise up and use their authority, they'll get a breakthrough. Amen? Amen. So let me encourage you to not be passive, but confront. And I'll never understand for the life of me why some people don't like that. I guess they're afraid of the devil. I believe some people are. They're afraid of the devil. They're afraid of demons. They're afraid of a witch. If a witch came into church, do you really think that I'm going to be scared about it? Listen, friend. We have authority over all the power of the enemy. But we have to use it. You can't sit back passively. Alright, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Now here's another point I want to make. You know, when you talk about angels, it doesn't bother me, never has. But I mean, some people are just weird about that. I don't know why. It just bothers them. But I'm going to tell you right now, angels are in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I mean, all the way through, and you see them in Revelation. They're all through the Bible. I mean, it's not like there's this one obscure reference to an angel once in the Bible. No, it's not like that. They're everywhere, okay? And so people that are weirded out about angels just got to get over it. And I'm going to tell you too that the Bible says he encamps his angels around those that fear him. And we need their protection. I wouldn't want to be here dropped behind enemy lines without any angelic protection. God doesn't make hot house plants. We don't live in some kind of little bubble where nothing can happen. How many knows we've been dropped behind enemy lines? But we need, whenever we pray, two things happen. When we pray and believe, the Holy Spirit begins to move. But the second thing that happens is angels are sent on assignment in response to your prayer. That's what happens. You don't see it, but you're praying for your lost loved ones. And without you necessarily seeing anything, you're praying for them. And the Holy Spirit begins to move in their life. And angels are sent on assignment to make sure that your prayers are answered in their life. That's what happens. Do you remember when Peter was imprisoned? See, the early church saw James. Remember Peter, James, and John? They saw James get captured. And they knew when James was captured, he was martyred. They had his head cut off. And this was a key leader. And so when Peter got captured... They were really concerned and they didn't want to lose another leader. And so they began to gather and pray, earnestly seeking God to get Peter out of this situation. What did God do? God sent an angel. In the middle of the night, the angel walks in. And as he walks into the prison, doors are just flying open. He goes in there and looks at Peter and kicks him, wakes him up and his chains fall off. And Peter just follows the angel right out of prison. See, we pray that the blood of Jesus be over our family. We ask the Lord that His Spirit is brooding and moving. We use our authority and bind the enemy and command him to back off. But we also ask the Lord, Lord, 
send your angels to take care of business. Here's what angels do. They dismantle and destroy and remove what's of the devil's kingdom. There may have been some stubborn demon that was at work in somebody's life and just was stubborn and stubborn until the angel shows up. And then he's going to take off running. Amen? I love this scripture. God had told David, he said, wait until you hear the sound of marching on the tops of the trees. He said, you go over here and when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the trees, you will know that I've gone before you. Then go into battle. Let me read it to you. First, First Chronicles 14, 15. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move out in battle because that will mean God has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. What was marching in the tops of the trees? It was the angels of the Lord. And when God said, now wait, David, don't just jump in there. Let the angels go in front of you and they're going to go defeat the enemy and then you go in behind the angels and you'll win. This is good. Angels protect us in Psalm 91. It talks about they watch over you and bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I mentioned before Psalm 34, 7, where he encamps his angels around those that fear the Lord. But I'm going to tell you something else. Angels open up doors for the gospel to spread. In the last days in Matthew 13, 39, it says the end of the age is the harvest and angels are the harvesters. In these last days, God is sending out His angels among the nations to open up doors that no man could open for the gospel to spread and to go into areas where they can gather in a harvest and protect that harvest from the devil. And God is sending His angels to work with harvesters to see this last day harvest brought in. But start praying that the angels of the Lord be released. There's many, many times that I've felt angelic activity a lot. I've seen angelic activity, but my focus is on Jesus. I don't chase after angels, I chase after Jesus. I'm not trying to talk to them, I'm trying to talk to Jesus. I don't preach all about them all the time. Some, some people have gotten off base and they talk so much about that, but they don't talk enough about the Lord and... and it has gotten off. But I'm going to tell you, I'm not chasing after angels, but they're, they're powerful and they're effective. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil and he went through all that spiritual warfare? He had fasted. After that, the Bible says that angels came to minister to him. You remember reading that? When Elijah was being faced with that Jezebel spirit and he ran out and hid under a juniper tree, he was dealing with supernatural depression. He was really being oppressed by something. And there he was. He was weak and he was tired. The Bible says that God sent an angel to Elijah that kind of woke him up out of that stupor and gave him supernatural food that sustained him for 40 days of walking through a desert. Whenever Jesus was in the womb of Mary, an angel came to Joseph in a dream and said, you need to take your family and go to Egypt and get out of here. I've sensed a lot of angelic activity. I just don't bring a lot of attention to it because they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. The focus is you get everybody's focus on Jesus. You see what I'm saying? 
I loved in, in the Benny Hinn meetings over the years, his heart and him always telling people, I couldn't heal you if I wanted to. Get your eyes on Jesus. He's your Savior. He's your healer. He's your deliverer. And when people get their eyes on Jesus, miracles happen. Carlos Anaconda in the great Argentine revival said that there were some people that weren't healed. And later it kind of, they kind of figured out that there were some people that were looking to Carlos as their healer. And it actually hindered the flow of healing because Jesus isn't going to share His glory with anybody. But whenever people get their eyes off of man and they get their eyes on Jesus, things happen. Get your eyes off of the angels and on Jesus. Amen? Amen. But nonetheless, their presence makes a difference. Alright, I'm going to talk about reaping in time of harvest. Remember, David recovered all in Ziklag. Abraham recovered all whenever he went to war. Isaac plants and reaps a hundredfold in time of famine. Let me read this to you. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in the land for a while and I'll be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give these lands and confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and bless them with these lands. Through your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. Now listen to this. So Isaac stayed in Gerar because the Lord told him to. There was a famine. I want you to picture you guys know how it is when it doesn't rain for a long time. I mean, it's dry and it's dusty and there's dust coming up. Can you imagine Isaac out there and his workers and, and they take that plow and here they, they, they hook it up to the, the bull or whatever and here they are, they're trying to plow and the ground is so dry that it's literally just like dust is coming up. There's no water. There's no, I mean, and, and they're sitting there, they're plowing this dry land and they go through there by faith and they take their seed and they put it in this dry land and kick that dirt over on top of it and there's no rain. Isaac, verse 12, planted his crops in the land and the same year reaped 100 fold because the Lord blessed him. Not one seed he planted died. 100 fold harvest came up. The man became rich. His wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up filling them with dirt. Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us. You become too powerful for us. So the king of the Philistines, the Philistines were suffering economically and they became afraid of Isaac because he was becoming so wealthy at the hand of God's blessing. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar where he settled and Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham which the Philistines had stopped up. He gave them the same names as his father did. There's something about in stopping the wells of our spiritual fathers that I can't preach on but tapping into spiritual fathers what they labored to have that it's passing to the next generation. Amen? But some of the areas that God, that people are believing God for a hundredfold harvest is financial. Now I'm going to give you some things real quick. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, when, not if, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. 
He didn't say if you give, if you pray, if you fast. But when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. And he gave some instructions. I believe the giving part is like a 30-fold. When you're a giver and a prayer warrior, you're moving into a 60-fold. But when you're a giver and you're a prayer warrior and you add fasting, you're moving into a 100-fold. Does that make sense? Some people are just givers alone. They don't pray. Others, they give and pray. But when you're a giver and you obey the Bible in that area and you're a prayer warrior and you're a fast, a person that's a, a faster, how are you going to say that? A faster? Are you faster? All right, you're into fasting in your lifestyle. Then you're reaping a hundredfold harvest. So here's something that the scripture talks about. So see, as I mentioned earlier, when you pray, James 4, 2 it says, we have not because we ask not. You've got to pray and believe. And then God's going to release that in your life. Another thing, to learn about fasting, the power of fasting, read Isaiah 58. Which talks about when you fast, it looses bands of wickedness. And it, it unties the heavy yoke. It breaks the power of the enemy. Fasting is powerful. But when it comes to finances, we all know this scripture, but Malachi 3, 6-12. It talks about when you when you tithe, which is the first 10% of what you make. When you're a faithful tither to the Lord. It says that the Lord rebukes the devourer. He opens the heavens of your life. He pours out so much blessing you don't have room enough to contain it. And it even goes so far as to say nations will rise to call you blessed. And I have found that to be true. I don't regret in my life ever tithing because... The tithing has rebuked and pushed back the devil's influence and released God's blessing in my life. It has. But if you're faithful with your tithing, and also, I'm going to give you two other points, your alms to the poor. This is above the tithe, but in Psalms 41, it says those that regard the poor, it says that they will be delivered in times of trouble, protected and preserved, Counted among the blessed of the land, not given over to the desires of their enemies, sustained on a sickbed, and restored to health. All of that is in Psalm 41 in reference to those that regard the poor financially. Isn't that a powerful scripture? Also, I might add, blessing Israel. God blesses those that bless Israel, Genesis 12, 1-3. So, above the tithe, being somebody that gives toward the poor and their needs being met, but also in a way to bless Israel. I believe those that bless the nation of Israel are tapping into the blessings given to Abraham. I believe the early church knew what they were doing whenever in in the book of Acts it prophesied there would be a famine in the land. And so Paul went throughout the Gentile church and took up an offering from all of them to take it back to the church in Jerusalem and bless the Jewish people with it because he knew that if he could get the Gentiles to bless the Jews that God would bless them and sustain them through the famine that was coming. And the Bible says in Psalms 122.6 that God prospers those that love Israel. So I'm talking about recovering all. If you want to live a lifestyle where whenever things show up in your life that you need a breakthrough and you need a recovery and you want to recover all, 
you're going to have to be somebody that also lives a life of being faithful in your tithing regarding the poor and blessing Israel. Amen? And that is a part of the whole. Alright. Just a couple more points I want to cover. Talk about God's courtroom. And then close this out with faith and praise. But Jephthah rebukes the king of Ammon for saying Israel took land unjustly from uh, Ammon and Moab. That king said that Israel had unjustly taken land and Jephthah rebuked him because that wasn't true. Let me read you this story and I'll show you what I mean. Jephthah sent messengers to the Amorite king with this question. What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites entered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to Jabbok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peacefully. And Jephthah sent back these messengers to the Ammonite king saying, this is what Jephthah says, Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when, they came, when we came out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, give us permission to go through your country, but the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent messengers to the king of Moab, but he refused, so Israel stayed in Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, and passed along the eastern side of Moab, and camped on the other side of Arnon, and they did not enter the territory of Moab, for, the Arnon, for Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, who ruled over Heshbon, saying, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Sion, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered his troops, encamped at Jehaz, and fought with Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven out the Amorites before his people Israel, what right do you have to take it over? Will you not give what will you not take what your God Chemosh has given you? Likewise, whatever the Lord has given us, we will possess it. Are we better than are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? And then he goes on in verse twenty seven says, I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. And make a long story short. Jephthah led the Israelites into battle and they annihilated the enemy. See, the enemy will come in as an accuser. He was trying to accuse Israel saying, you unjustly took land from us. And Jephthah said, no, we didn't. But he said, let the Lord, the judge, decide between us. Here's an interesting principle. If you want to learn how to recover all, you're going to have to learn about God's courtroom. See, God repaid the Amalekites for their wickedness. The Amalekites, in the Bible, different enemies represent different things. Try to grasp that this is, this is something fascinating to me. But the Philistines represented the enemy of witchcraft. They operated with intimidation and, and they operated in the, in the dark arts. Moab and Ammon represented like a veil of flesh that tries to hinder people from pressing into the things of the Spirit. There's other enemies... But the enemy of the Amalekites, what the Amalekites did was, when Israel would march, they would try to come up from behind and pick off the stragglers who had grown weary from the journey. It was like people that were marching, but they were sick, they were feeble, they were tired. 
And the Amalekites would sneak up behind them and would pick off those. And God became very angry with the Amalekites because of the way that they treated Israel. And in the days of Samuel, Samuel went to Saul and said, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now listen to the message of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Even the donkeys had to die. So God was judging the Amalekites. But let me tell you, in these last days, I believe an important principle for us is to understand that God is also a God of divine justice. The Bible calls Him Jehovah Mishpah, which means the righteous judge. In the Bible it says in Revelation in the last days, Revelation 12, 12 says, But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, and he's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Revelation 13, 7 says that the devil was given power to make war against the saints and conquer them. But you've got to also understand that Daniel 7, 22 says about the last days that the Ancient of Days came and He pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the, the time came when they possessed the kingdom. But God is a God of justice. When the enemy comes as an accuser, and he begins to accuse you to God, see, when the enemy comes as an accuser, he tries to bring condemnation. He makes people feel like a piece of garbage that they can never amount to anything. He's always trying to bring up their past mistakes. If they do make a mistake, he tries to heap condemnation on them. That's the accuser. The accuser attacks Christians by trying to pit them against each other. But the accuser also attacks God's people by trying to accuse them to God. And he says, look what your people are doing. I have a right to attack them because of what they're doing. That's why the Bible says to always agree whenever the enemy takes you to court to agree with your adversary along the way. What that means is, is that if the devil comes to accuse you, you just simply say, you know what? Maybe I did sin in that area. God, I'm sorry. I repent. Wash me. And then that matter settled. But if you try to argue with the accuser, it could cost you a lot. Because if you're guilty, then you'll end up opening a door for a satanic attack. But God is just. And what you've got to understand is when you go before God, let me read you this story about the persistent widow. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And he said, in a certain town there was a judge. This judge neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town that kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she get justice, that she won't eventually come back and attack me. And, the, and Jesus said this, Listen to what the unjust judge says, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and get it quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he'll find faith in the earth. This is how I want to start closing this thing down. God knows when the devil comes in and attacks his people. 
They may be at a weak place. And the enemy is coming in like the Amalekites to try to pick them off. And he's coming in. He's trying to falsely accuse them. He's trying to accuse them to themselves and trying to attack and tear them down. And the enemy, how many know sometimes the enemy's come in and he's stolen some things? But you have the right to take him to court. And this is something that I don't hear preached very often. But it's a powerful weapon of war in these last days that you can take the devil to court before God and say the enemy has stolen this from me. And I'm asking you for vindication and justice that it's restored back. I've preached along these lines and I've heard people tell me over and over that they made a list of things they felt like the devil stole. And they went before God and they said, God, I'm coming to you because you're, the, you're a judge and you're faithful. And the enemy has stolen these things and he doesn't have a right to steal these things. The Bible says he's come to steal, kill and destroy. And I know that I'm forgiven and I'm, I'm righteous because of the blood of Jesus. And I'm asking you for justice. That what the enemy has stolen will be restored back unto me, even sevenfold. And I've heard testimony after testimony after testimony of people getting things back. I've even heard testimonies of people that were sick, that the sickness left them. So I'm encouraging you that if you feel like the devil has stolen something from you, maybe there was something in your family bloodline that should be yours. But it's like the devil stole that wealth from your family. And it should be yours today, but the devil stole it. Then take the devil to court and let God restore it back unto you. This is what it says in the Bible. When a thief is caught, he must repay sevenfold what he's stolen. So I'm talking about recovering all. Make a list. I'm telling you, make a list. Sit down and write it down. If, if the devil has stolen your good name, he's trying to damage your character. If the devil's stolen things from you, he's stolen houses. I've taken the devil to court about things for other people and I saw God respond. Wherever there's been injustices, maybe you were lied about, you were betrayed, something happened and it cost you to suffer loss. It caused you to suffer loss. It caused you maybe to lose a job. God will restore it. This is what I want to close with. This is good. See, in the last days it says the devil will attack viciously. But it also says in Daniel 7.22 that the Ancient of Days will take his seat and pronounce judgment in favor of the righteous. So even though the devil's attacking viciously, God will give you justice. The last thing is faith and praise. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We've got to pray and believe. And this is the last point I want to make, but it's, it's very important. We have to pray and believe. Anytime we're getting out of faith and into doubt, fear, and unbelief, it can hinder what God's wanting to do. We've got to stay in faith that when we pray and believe it to be done, what faith is, is you pray about something and you believe that it is done and that it, God is doing it. It's in the works. Even though you don't feel it, you don't see it, it's still happening. It's still in the works. Jesus said, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So you've got to believe first, and then you'll see it. 
The world teaches people to see it first, then believe. You have to learn to believe God, even though you don't see it. I remember the story of Kenneth Hagin, an incurable blood disease and, and, and a deformed heart. And he didn't know the Bible very much, but he read this and he prayed and believed. And for a year, he kept speaking out. He kept speaking that mountain. I know that I'm healed. I prayed about it. I'm healed. This, this blood disease is going away. This, this heart is, is going to be normal. I'm healed. And for a year, he kept speaking that. And gradually, he was getting better and better. But the doctors had given up on him. He was skin and bones. He was on his deathbed. The doctors had given up on him said, it's a lost cause. He will die. But he kept believing and he kept speaking his faith until he made a full recovery. Sometimes you're not going to see things overnight. Sometimes it's going to take time. But as we believe God and keep speaking our faith, then it's in the works and it's happening. The awesome power of praise. We enter into the, God's courtroom with thanksgiving and praise, but at the end of our prayer time, we're praising God and thanking Him for answering our prayers. But the Bible says this about praise in Isaiah 30, 29-32. It says, And you will sing, as on the night you celebrate a holy festival, the heart, your hearts will rejoice as people playing pipes go up to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause people to hear His majestic voice and will make them see His arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire with cloudbursts, thunderstorm and hail. The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria. With His rod He will strike them down. Every stroke of the Lord that He lays on them with His punishing club will be to the sound of music, of timbrels and harps as He fights them in battle with the blows of His arm. In other words, God was destroying the enemy for Israel as they praised Him. Every time that the children of Israel would go to war, they would send Judah first because it represented praise. Praise releases something that breaks the power of the devil. And praise and faith go together because you're praising God when you're in faith. You're praising God for the victory. But this is how I want to end this, this whole sermon is this. Our words have the power of life and death in them. Proverbs 18.21 And also Deuteronomy 30.19 says, I lay before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. We have the power with our mouth to pray and believe God and speak faith. And as you keep speaking faith, it will turn things that direction. But we also have the power to speak blessings. I don't have time to go back and do a whole thing on blessings. But blessings is you speaking out of your mouth what you want to see happen. Remember when Jesus brought the little children, they brought them unto Him. He didn't pray for them, He blessed them. Whenever Isaac was to bless Esau, but Jacob came in and took it. Whenever Isaac blessed Jacob, it set in motion in his life. Those words that, that Isaac put on him caused him to be blessed and prosper in life. You can put your words of blessing on a person, place, or thing, and it will change it. You see, people are wanting to recover all, but we're not going to recover all unless our mouth is going to be a part of that. We've got to speak faith, and we've got to speak blessings. True faith will be tested with time, like Abraham and David. Abraham was promised a son, but it took many years before he saw it. David wandered in caves for years before he became the king of Israel. 
Sometimes God will make promises to you, but it'll seem like it's taken forever to come to pass, but your faith is being tested. As long as you're in faith, it's going to happen in God's timing. Peter, people say, well, you know, he sunk. My statement is this, he got out of the boat. But he walked on the water because he, was, he had faith and he was a risk taker. Nobody else that was there can say, I walked on the water. But Peter can say, yeah, I sunk, but at least I walked a few steps on the water and you didn't. He stepped out in faith. And when he did, he was able to supernaturally walk on the water. See, faith makes people be risk takers. Remember what Jesus said. He said, everything is possible to him who believes. In Hebrews 6.12, we do not want to become lazy, but we want to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. You have to be full of faith and you've got to have patience. You see, when you pray, we've got to believe. When we pray these things, we pray about the blood of Jesus being over people's lives and the Holy Spirit brooding over their lives. And we're asking God to release His angels. And we're taking authority over the enemy and driving him back. And we're taking the devil to God's courtroom and saying, look, he stole this and we're asking for justice. When we do these things, we have to believe. And when we believe that it's done, then we're going to walk out of our prayer time saying, Lord, I thank you that it's done. It's happening. I may not see it yet. I may not feel it yet. It doesn't matter. It's happening. It's in the works. And we're praising him for the victory because we believe it to be done. And that is how you're going to recover all. Some of you, there's things in your life that you feel like the devil's stolen. And I want to pray right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name and through His blood. And the people within the sound of my voice, I know that from this moment forward, they're going to begin to look over this list. They're going to begin to put the blood and pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work and angels and all that. But Father, I just want to take a moment to take the devil before your courtroom on their behalf. Because Lord, I believe that some people within the sound of my voice and those that are hearing this, maybe you're listening to this through an iPod, you're driving down the road, I don't know, you're hearing this maybe over the internet. I'm praying for you. And Father, I pray for every person within the sound of my voice and they're coming in agreement with me right now. You may hear this years from now. Just come in agreement with me. Lord, that you said if two agree on earth is touching anything, it'll be done. But Father, there's people that the devil's come in to steal, kill, and destroy, and he has stolen from them maybe their good name and reputation. He has stolen from them material things, things that even should have traveled down family lines and been an inheritance to them, that somewhere the devil stole it. Satan has stolen maybe finances, that there's lost loved ones that are away from God right now, but you said that you would bless a thousand generations of them that love you. And you promised us household salvation. They're marked. They're marked by the blood of Jesus. They're marked. They don't belong to the world. And Lord, maybe there's relationships that have been destroyed. And I'm asking you right now for divine justice in every life. We call the devil a thief who has come in to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, you paid on the cross for our healing, for our deliverance, 
and for our provision. And I'm asking you, Father, in Jesus' name, for divine justice, that you are the Ancient of Days. That you would render justice for your people within the sound of my voice, that everything the devil has damaged in their life, in their family, their bloodline, their households, would be repaired. Everything the devil has stolen would be restored back sevenfold. Because you said that when a thief is caught, he must restore sevenfold. Everything that the devil has put in people's lives, maybe sickness or whatever, Lord, that it would be taken out. And the damage, the, the chaos, the disorders, the dysfunction that the devil has caused, that all that mess that the devil made would be cleaned up and put back the way it's supposed to be. Lord, you said in your word in Galatians 3.13 that the blessings given to Abraham are on us as Gentiles right now. And so, Lord, any area that the enemy has been trying to damage, he has no right to do it any longer. But we're asking you for divine justice that from this moment forward, we're asking you that your gavel will come down about this tonight. We're asking you right now that things would be set in motion, that angels would be released on assignment, that the Spirit of God would begin to move, and that there would be a recovering all. And not one stone left unturned. And I see boundary stones as I'm praying that, Lord, where Satan has tried to steal and tried to move people's boundary stones in and confine them. I'm asking you, Lord, that you would break that out and expand back out boundary stones where it's supposed to be. Divine justice, Lord. Divine justice right now. Once you guys right now just say out loud to the Lord to yourself, but tell him about finances, about lost loved ones, just say it out loud to him right now. He's listening, I'm telling you. You can see this. His ear is listening. What do you feel like the devil has stolen? Start speaking it out. Is it your health? Is it the health of your loved ones? Is it relationships that have been damaged? Lift them up. Is it lost loved ones that are away from God? Keep talking to Him. Don't let me interrupt you. But Father, I thank You. You are the Ancient of Days. Right now, all this is coming up before Your throne. We ask You for divine justice. Lord, I pray for people right now under the sound of my voice, their, their family, their lost loved ones right now. We put them under the blood of Jesus. Right now, we mark them. One lamb per household. That means that as, as we have taken the Lord's Supper, it affects them. They are marked by the blood of Jesus. They don't belong to the world. They are not Satan's property. They are the seed of the righteous. And Lord, we put them under the blood of Jesus right now. We put under the blood of Jesus what we own, our lives, our families, our ministries, our relationships, our finances. 
Lord, we ask You that Your Spirit begin to fill and brood over all of this. Over our lost loved ones. Over those that are away from You. Right now, the Spirit of God begin to move in their life and draw them unto You. Lord, that they're going to begin to be drawn unto the Lord. Friend, I feel this. Lord, we speak into their life. Lord, that Your kingdom come right now. We release the kingdom of God to be released to them now. On earth as it is in heaven. Lord, that their lives are moving into the will of God right now. We command that be released. And we use our God-given authority that I bind in Jesus' name every satanic spirit of rebellion, whatever it is trying to come against them, if it's drugs, if it's alcohol, if it's witchcraft, whatever it is, I bind it now and I break the devil's power off their lives. Right now, Satan, you will not have them. We bind you back off. Right now, back off. And I'm asking you, Lord, to release your angels right now that will be on assignment. Man, I I feel that, friend. Wow. Whew. I ask you, Lord, to release your angels on assignment that will drive back the devil and help bring in the kingdom of God in their life, in Jesus' name. And help move them into alignment with your will, in Jesus' name. And Father, we pray right now and we believe it is done. We believe something has been set in motion and we thank you for that. We praise you that you are worthy. Father, we speak out to the north, south, east, and west for lost loved ones right now. And we speak, come home in Jesus' name. We call them in. We pull them in. Something's shifting. I feel it. Just worship and pray in the Spirit. God's doing something right now. He's giving divine justice is what He's doing. And Father, I pray, just keep praying as you feel led to pray. Just pray. But I pray right now for Anthony's harvest. Lord, we put it under the blood of Jesus. I bind you, Satan, away from it. Release it right now. I speak doors open. Angels be released. That will open up doors. Revival breaking out. Father, we agree right now for Mika and Rachel in Finland and for the harvest there. I speak right now that that, um, as enemies tried to maybe confine because of a religious spirit. Lord, we speak eastward right now. We break that open right now in Jesus' name. We bind Satan's kingdom back off their harvest right now. We ask you, Lord, increase the anointing and the glory. Yes, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for a mighty move of your spirit right now in Jesus' name. So I'm going to pray with people.